Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, MFT goes mainstream with Lori Gottlieb. Probably you've all heard of her. If you haven't, where have you been? Lori is a psychotherapist and author of the New York Times bestseller, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which is currently being adapted as a television series for ABC. In addition to her clinical practice, she writes the Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist. She also has a podcast, Dear Therapist which came out in 2020. She contributes regularly to the New York Times and many other publications. Her recent TED Talk is one of the top 10 most watched of 2020. A member of the Advisory Council for Bring Change to Mind and advisor to the Aspen Institute, she is a sought-after expert in media, such as the Today Show, Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, CNN, and NPR's Fresh Air. You can find more about Lori at LoriGottlieb.com or by following her on Twitter at LoriGottlieb1 and Instagram at LoriGottlieb underscore author. More after the interview. So pleased to have New York Times bestselling author, MFT. She's a a writer. Really, when I think of Lori Gottlieb, I think of a storyteller. And we're going to hear about Lori's story today. So you have quite a circuitous path to getting to MFT. So people that are familiar with your work or maybe people that aren't as familiar, you've had stops at places like Yale, Stanford, medical school, NBC. Tell us about this journey and how you finally got to MFT, Lori. I probably took one of the most nonlinear paths possible to becoming a therapist. I have always been interested in the human condition, but mainly through the lens of story. And so when I graduated from college, I started working in the entertainment business and I started doing film development and then eventually moved over to NBC because I love the episodic nature of television and being able to follow the arc of someone's narrative over a longer period of time, often years. And so when I got to NBC, there were two new shows that were premiering, um, which you probably heard of. One was called Friends, and the other one was called ER. Must-see TV. Must-see TV, Thursday night, right? And that was when there were really just the networks. And yeah, there was HBO and Showtime, but it wasn't, you know, cable didn't really have the kind of programming that it does now. And so it was a big deal, the Thursday night on NBC. And so when I was working on ER, we had a consultant who was an ER physician who would help us to make sure that the trauma based scenes were choreographed accurately. And, you know, all of those details were portrayed as accurately as possible on the show. And I spent a lot of time in the ER with him. And I was fascinated by what I saw in the ER. It was such a moving experience because I think that when you go into an emergency room, it's almost always an inflection point. You know, people don't go to an ER because they expected something to happen. And so you'd see all these kinds of things, like someone would come in with headaches and they leave knowing they have a brain tumor or, you know, these just really big life shifts. And at one point, the the consultant on the show said to me, um, he said, you know, I think you like it here better than you like your day job. Maybe you should go to medical school. And of course, I was a French major. I was a French literature major, undergrad. And and that was because, again, I loved sort of story and the human condition and culture. And I had this great job at NBC. But I did decide, you know what, I did did a lot more sort of shadowing of doctors 
And I really fell in love with it. And so I decided to take the pre-med classes and apply to medical school. And I ended up at Stanford. And when I got to Stanford, it was the height of the dot-com boom right before the first bus. So this was like 1999, 2000. And this new thing was happening in healthcare, which was that it was, you know, nobody knew what it meant yet, but it was managed care. And a lot of my professors were saying, it looks like we're not going to be able to spend as much time with our patients. It looks like insurance companies are going to dictate a lot of what we do. It looks like, you know, that this idea that I had of being the family doctor who guides people through their lives was going to be very difficult to do in this new climate. And as it happened, I started writing when I was in medical school and I left medical school to become a journalist where I felt like I could really delve into people's stories. I could really help them to tell their stories. And so for 10 years, I was happily a journalist. And then I ended up, when I had my first baby, feeling really isolated. And I think a lot of new parents experience this where you really crave adult company you know, during the day. And so the UPS guy would come with the myriad deliveries that you know, new parents need. And I would detain him in conversation, much to his chagrin. He would he would sort of back away to his big brown truck and try to avoid me. And eventually he started tiptoeing very quietly to my door and leaving the packages so I would not open the door and he wouldn't have to deal with me. And I realized, okay, something needs to change here. So I called up the dean at Stanford Medical School, who I had become very close with while I was there. I used to run her mother-daughter book groups. And I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she said, listen, if you come back to do psychiatry, you're going to do mostly medication management, or if you want to do talk therapy, you're going through residency and, and maybe fellowship, internship for sure, all of that with a baby, with a toddler. Why don't you get a graduate degree in clinical psychology and do the kind of deep work that you have always talked about? And it was, in, in retrospect, I think the advice sounds very obvious, but it was this aha moment for me. Sometimes we don't think of something that's kind of right there in front of us. And so that's what I did. And so I decided to get a graduate degree in clinical psychology. I became an MFT. And I feel like I went from telling people stories as a journalist to helping people to change their stories as a therapist. And of course, I never stopped writing. I just, you know, maybe you should talk to someone. The book just came out. I write the weekly Dear Therapist column for The Atlantic. I've done TED Talks. I have a podcast. I write all kinds of features. So I never stopped the writing. It was more that I felt like I could get into story in the human condition from different lenses that complement each other. Yeah, we're going to talk about all of those endeavors, but it's just amazing in listening to that pathway like you have to be incredibly brave a to to leave a job at NBC at the height of the boom as you're talking about in the 90s on two very successful shows and then what it takes to get into medical school not just any medical school Stanford medical school and then to kind of branch out on your own as a freelance journalist and then wanting to go from writing about people's stories to helping people change their stories, so to speak. So uh, uh, what I love about the MFT profession, and I don't know what your cohort was like, but you see people that are very chronologically and professionally young. And a lot of those people listen to the show that they're right out of undergrad. And then you see people shifting careers because of their personal connection, either through their own therapy or wanting to help people. So I'm wondering what it was like for you in a graduate cohort learning to do a therapy with other people with this great kind of life experience and professional experience. Were you easy to supervise or were you, because you had your own ideas about how people work and how relationships are, was that sometimes a challenge because of all the life experience you had before getting into an MFT program? Well, I think it really helped me to have had that life experience. I remember even in medical school, there was this course that we took called Doctor Patient and it was basically to teach you the how do you interact with your patients. So it's not just everything that you learn in medical school, but you also have to learn how to be a, a human in that room with the people that you see. And they videotaped these interactions and then we would critique them. And I remember that when we did Dr. Patient, I was the only person in my medical school class who introduced myself to the patient when I walked in the room. And so, you know, and I was I was an older student in medical school that at that time I was 30. And so, you know, I think that people who go straight from undergrad to grad school, whether it's medical school or to an MFT program, they just they haven't had that life experience yet. And so I think there are bonuses to that and then there are some downsides to that. 
And I, I think that in terms of being supervised, you know, I knew I had a lot to learn. I had as much to learn as somebody who was 22 years old in terms of the field. But what I had that I thought was an advantage was that I knew what it was like to be out in the world. I had worked, I'd worked at big corporations. I had been a freelancer. I was a parent. I had lived life. And I felt that that really helped me a lot, just more intuitively in terms of how I dealt with patients. You know, this is one of the greatest professions in the world because you can't age out of it as long as you stay curious and self-aware. It is like something you can kind of grow into. So I always... I think it. I do think it's an advantage when you have life experience. When I'm interviewing students to enter the the program that that I administer, that is what we're looking for. Well-rounded life experience. When you started doing the work, did you naturally kind of think systemically, and you just didn't have the language, or what? What are your biggest memories from that period training as, as a systemic therapist? Yeah. Well, just before I get to that, I want to say one more thing sure. um, about being an older person going through this. I think that one thing that the older people had that some of the younger people maybe hadn't really internalized yet was a a deep sense of humility. And I think that's so important for our profession. So I think that I was very aware that I had a lot to learn and there was a lot that I didn't know. And I had a humility about me because of it. So I wasn't this attitude of, oh, I'm older and I know a lot more than you youngins, <laughs> right? It was, I, I know that there's a lot that I don't know. And I think as people get older, they realize how much they don't know. I think that when we're 22, 23, we, we think we know a lot about the world in a way that we just can't yet, just simply because we haven't experienced it. And so I think humility is so important in this profession. And I noticed that the people who came to this later in life had developed that sense of humility in a way that, and again, this is a generalization, but in a way that some of the younger people maybe hadn't yet. Beautifully said, and I think uh, the, I study these self of therapist factors. So like humility, also kind of correlating that with curiosity, uh, not feeling that you know everything, that the client is kind of the expert to their own situation. Yes. And you're there along the ride, kind of co-creating with them. I mean, there's these postmodern principles, but they're still uh, so very true, and I couldn't agree with you more. So that experience, right, uh, combined with being a writer, the, the experience at The Atlantic writing this, and that's how I first heard about you. I've been training uh, MFTs now for about 15 years. I've been in the field a little over 20 and i just remember said you got to read this column in the atlantic because it is like a fresh take on an advice column the column of course dear therapist talk about in our timeline doing that were you already out practicing doing your thing and then because of your other connections and your journalistic background that that came to be talk about how the atlantic and writing that column certainly helped you reach a larger audience which led to the books and now the podcast and everything we're going to talk about but uh, talk about the experience doing that column right so i had been a contributing editor for the atlantic in my career as a journalist before becoming a therapist so i had written you know a lot of cover stories and features for them and worked very closely with them over the years and one of the things that i felt was missing out there There were a lot of advice columns, and I'm a big fan of advice columns. I love them, but they weren't written by therapists. And so they were people who you'd come to who were very wise, and I'm fans of, of many of them. But I felt like what people weren't getting was a perspective that a therapist could offer. And it, it sort of dovetails with what I'm trying to do in the book. And it's sort of about sort of democratizing therapy. And I don't mean that people are getting therapy in the column, but I think what they are getting is a window into how therapists think about everyday dilemmas. And so when somebody writes a letter to the Atlantic, just like when they write a letter to the, to the podcast, um, I'm really looking for letters that I can answer the letter for the letter writer, but I can also answer it in a way that will help to elucidate something for anybody reading it, whether they share that specific situation or not. And so I very, and also I'm not giving prescriptive advice per se in the column. It's not like, hey, don't talk to your mother-in-law, right? You know, um, it's it's more about, a lot of it is about what we do in therapy with our clients, which is, 
Can you perspective take? Can you broaden the story? Can you see your own role in this? Can you see a pattern here? And so I'm pointing all of that out. Of course, I have only the letter to go on, whereas in the therapy room, I have so much more to go on. But I think that once you've done enough therapy as a clinician, you can start to see a window into maybe what's going on in the various letters. I, I mean, I think as humans, we're all more the same than we are different. And so I think that, you know, there's nothing that I've seen where I've, I've thought, I've never seen that before, you know, on a core level, meaning the details might be different, but in terms of the emotional experience underlying it. And, and so I really, I think that the, the column draws a lot of people because it's a very different approach and people use it for growth for themselves. And of course, therapists use it because they, you know, they use it as a teaching tool and they use it as a learning. Yeah. And it also helps that you are a wonderful writer. And sometimes we think people have this really therapeutic gifts. It doesn't always transfer over to writing. So you blended these two parts of you really, really well. I was just going to say, I think, I think that when I'm doing the column, I lead with compassion. And, you know, that's something that I think we all do as therapists. But it's a kind of compassion where I'm going to hold up a mirror to you and help you to see something about yourself that you haven't already seen. So it's not this kind of compassion of, you know, oh, that's so terrible and these people are so terrible and you're right, <laughs> which is what we... No, you know, no, we this is one of, the, one of the things I love in the book. So you're there, so we'll talk about it. This idea of idiot compassion versus wise compassion. Yes, and so yes in, that's, that's it. Right. Go ahead. Yeah. And maybe you should talk to someone in the book. You know, I write about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. And idiot compassion is what our friends typically do. So they'll say, you know, here's this thing that happened with my mother, with my partner, with my boss, you know, with my roommate, you name it. And, you know, what do we say to them? We say, yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, that's that was really that was awful. Yeah, you're right. You know, that's what we say to them. And, and so it's sort of like we don't want to rock the boat, even though if you really listen to your friends, they're telling you the same story over and over, usually just with different characters in a different situation. And so, you know, it's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. But we don't say that to our friends, even though we might be thinking that or we might observe that. And so what happens in therapy is we offer not idiot compassion, but wise compassion. And that's where we hold up a mirror to people and we help them to see themselves in a way that they haven't been willing or able to do. And that's where the growth and transformation come in. That's where, you know, they have to say, wait a minute, what is my role in this? And that's that's related to, you know, my, my TED talk that I did about changing our stories is sort of a mini version of one of the main themes in the book, and maybe you should talk to someone, which is that we we have this very specific way of telling a story. We're all unreliable narrators. And it's not that we're purposely misleading, it's that we're seeing a situation through our lens. And sometimes the reason that we're stuck, because if you land in the therapy room, you got stuck somewhere, right? So the reason that we're stuck, because you wrote to the advice column or you went to therapy or whatever it is, is that you're unable to broaden your perspective on the story. There's nowhere for this story to go because the story, you're just, you're just trapped in that version of the story. And so I feel like a lot of the times my job as a therapist, even though I'm sitting in the therapist chair, is I'm really working as an editor and I'm helping people to rewrite this faulty narrative that they came in with so that they can get to the next chapter and the chapter after that. You know, I'm always asking myself, is the protagonist moving forward or is, there, or is the protagonist going in circles? And usually the protagonist is going in circles. They're not getting anywhere. Usually when you're uh, interviewed with these more mainstream outlets, they're not therapist interviews. So because you brought that up, that leads me to a whole bunch of other questions. But I'm curious, like when you were going through your training, obviously Michael White and narrative therapy was probably very appealing to you, even though you were already a storyteller, a writer, well before you got to a psychotherapy training program. But are, are you a fan of narrative therapy? I think that the different approaches almost mirror what I'm talking about in terms of the different lenses. I think that all of the different approaches are getting at the same thing. They're just approaching it through a different perspective. So whether it's narrative or whether it's attachment or whatever it might be, I think that everyone's sort of getting at the same thing. And so that's why I feel like how I work as a therapist and how a lot of people I know work as therapists is that we take a very eclectic approach. And I feel like that's almost become a cliche. You know, people say, I have a very eclectic approach. Um, I think you have to have a point of view, right? So it's not like we're, I'm just going to like pull anything out of a hat that I want to pull out of a hat at any moment. It's that I have a very strong sense of how I view 
a certain person and what they're going through. And then the way in which I help elucidate for them might utilize different approaches. But it's not that, oh, I have 20 different ways of thinking about this. Like I have a specific way of thinking about this person. I just need to figure out how to get there. I was I was a competitive chess player when I was younger. And I think that really comes in handy as a therapist because it's very strategic. So it's both very human because you're you're really connecting in the moment, human to human. But it's also very strategic because you have to figure out how can I get this person to see this thing that brings up a lot of shame in them or feels very threatening to them or they're really defended against it and they're working really hard not to see it. And so how can I understand what that resistance is about and then how can I help them to see it in a way that's going to feel like a relief to them when they see it? And so I'm thinking several moves ahead, you know, like if I make this move, they might make that move. But if they make that move, then I'm going to have to adjust and then make this move. One of the things that master clinicians know, they, you said it in just a very organic, articulate way, but yes, they see cycles, both with relationships and things coming ahead. So the chess player in you, you can anticipate that. And I always say, as someone that studies these therapist factors and client factors, a client has enough issues. Them having to fit to a therapist, one one way of working shouldn't be added to their list of already problems. A, a competent systemic therapist can see these patterns and cycles and fit to the client and, and match the worldview. So that's kind of a just that comes along with the territory. The other thing you were saying um, about turning the lens on yourself, which is a nice segue into the book, as I think this book, many people listening to this podcast will have already read it. I've actually read it twice and actually um, use it in as, as a MFT student first comes into our program and they get these pre-practicum skills. Many of them have been in therapy, some of them haven't, but it's just a great primer on what therapy is like, what the experience with a client is like, and what a therapist going through their own therapy is like. So what makes you so effective is it's this parallel process, right? As you write about these clients in the book, you're also talking, I'm not giving anything away here, you are uh, the fifth client and you talking about your own experience and being able to turn the mirror on yourself, which makes this book would not be the same without that. And you talk a lot about your experience with your therapist. So uh, that leads to a lot of questions too. Uh, First of all, your own therapy, MFT programs cannot require it. However, it's heavily recommended that you see what it's like from the other side of the couch, so to speak, as you're a student going for training. So I'm wondering when the first time you did your own therapy and then how you selected Wendell, who is, uh, you read the book, Wendell is your therapist, who you, you learn a lot from. Another one of these common factors is feedback. And you talk about, you know, feedback Wendell gave to you and, and uh, feedback you gave to him. But I'm, I'm interested in your ideas about therapist in training, getting their own therapy, and then how you picked Wendell. Yeah, (laughs) I'll start with how I picked Wendell because uh, I don't recommend going that route. (laughs) Um, So I I talk about it in book. So ironically, and I, I thought it was important to point this out, that even though as a therapist, I understand and I'm a strong proponent of people figuring out their lives. And I feel like therapy is almost like getting a really good second opinion on your life from somebody who's not in your life. Even though I know all of that, when I had something happen in my life, which is the inciting incident in the book, um, I was embarrassed that I was really in crisis and really felt like I I need to talk to someone about this. And I was embarrassed by the the size of my reaction by the sort of immensity of my reaction. And then, you know, shame layered upon shame was then, and then, you know, now I'm going to go see a therapist and I can't really, why can't I handle this myself? You know, all the things that we would tell somebody else, well, you know, go see someone, you know, you don't have to handle this yourself. And so, and you know, and there's no stigma and all of that. I wasn't there in that moment. And so I called up a colleague And I asked for a recommendation for, quote unquote, you know, someone else. And it wasn't until much later that I told her that the that the referral had actually been for me. And so um, I really feel like what I'm trying to do with all of the different, you know, whether it's the book or the podcast or the column or the TED talk or whatever, I'm really trying to just open up and normalize the idea of people 
getting help, people prioritizing their emotional lives and making that just like a normal part of the human condition. You know, it's, it's interesting because when we talk about our physical health, we don't talk about it the same way that we talk about our emotional health. Often, um, you know, with our emotional health, we think like, yeah, well, this depression, this anxiety, this, you know, insomnia, this relational difficulty, it's not that bad compared to what other people experience or, you know, however we minimize it to ourselves. We don't do that with our physical health. If you break your arm, you don't say to yourself, yeah, but I don't have cancer. So, you know, other people have it worse. So I'm not going to go to the doctor and get my arm set, right? We, <laughs> we don't do that. And so I really, you know, so I, I write that story and maybe you should talk to someone because I wanted people to see that it's so strong in our culture that even I, as a therapist who knows better, felt hesitant to go do this. And so I think that Wendell was a great experience for me because he was much more experienced than I was. I was starting out as a therapist, even though we were not that dissimilar in age because I started so late. He had already been doing this for 20 years. And I learned so much from the process of being in therapy, from watching him. You know, it's one thing to do therapy. I'd done therapy at other times in my life, but not around the time when I decided to become a therapist. And then I did my 500 hours of therapy. But you're an intern at that time and you don't really know that much. And so I think like once you've been in practice for a while and then you go to therapy, it's a whole different experience. And the ways that I was learning not only about myself, which is what I was there to do, but also just to observe how he brought his whole personality into the room. And I don't mean that he was inappropriate in any way or crossing boundaries. What I mean is that he was so incredibly authentically him. And I think that when we're training, we have this idea of, you know, what does it look like to be the quote professional in the room, the expert in the room? And as I say at the beginning of maybe you should talk to someone, I say that my most significant credential is that I'm a card carrying member of the human race, that I use my humanity in the therapy room every minute of every session. And if I'm not, then I'm not doing my job. So I think that what therapy can do for people is to help them, first of all, learn about themselves because you really need to know yourself well in order to help people through their own struggles and to get to know themselves. But I think the other thing that it does is it shows you, I think, what, a, you know, if you're with a good therapist, what a good, what, what it looks like to have that, that good therapeutic relationship and then to make it yours. So I didn't become Wendell in the therapy room when I became, when I went back to my office after leaving his office. I just became more me. Yeah, you appreciated his unique, as we call, way of being, his authentic use of self. And again, if we try to play act somebody else's, it will never work. But you could capture and appreciate what's unique about Wendell. And you also point out just the powerful nature of the therapeutic alliance. It is the difference that makes a difference. We call it a necessary but not sufficient form of change. It's, a ma it's hard to imagine any good therapy without it. So that's came across really clearly in the book. What did Wendell think? Because obviously, you know, therapists seeing other therapists, at some point you have to identify that, yes, you are a therapist. Uh, and in case for you, a very notable therapist and columnist at the time, what did Wendell think about that? And then obviously he's been de-identified and changed his name, but the, the current relationship with Wendell, I've never seen anybody ask you this. What does he think of his portrayal in the book? I think he was very moved by it. Um, you know, I, I think that as therapists, we know how important we are to our clients, but I don't know that it always gets expressed in that way. And I think that, you know, it, it very, very clearly comes across in, in every chapter in that book, even, even the moment where I talk about how, you know, things that maybe I would have done differently or things that I, I feel like in retrospect, maybe were he could have handled differently, you know. I, I think that's part of what the relationship is, is kind of, you know, what happens when, you know, you can look back and talk about these things and, and say, hey, maybe maybe this could have gone differently. And, and do you have a strong enough relationship to do that? Yeah, it is a beautiful testament to the therapeutic relationship, the ebb and flow of, of both receiving and giving feedback. Uh, and as a obviously a therapist and a trainer, I'm, I was riveted by all of the, the portrayals in the book of, of your for clients, which you can talk about, but certainly that relationship with Wendell uh, is something that was special, and I'm glad he is 
he sees that as a tribute of very much as it is. The other response, uh, I mean, you've gotten lots of response from the book. You are so vulnerable in the book, and I guess if you own your own vulnerability, it can never be used against you. But another question I got when I told listeners and, and my, my students that I would be talking to you is like, when you become a you know, a family therapist and you really have crossed into the mainstream as far as psychotherapy. And usually on this podcast, we've interviewed the movers and shakers in the field, but it's in the little bubble of systemic therapy. You now, you know, you are now taking psychotherapy, the mainstream, you're, you're normalizing. It is like to uh, go to therapy and therapists receiving their own therapy. I think it's wonderful, but you also now have to deal. I mean, you can't have anonymity anymore. People that come to see you obviously know who you are now. So I wonder how you deal with that in your busy life and schedule in your own practice, people coming to you because they know who you are. And now that people so know so much about you, it changes the dynamic in the sense that uh, a therapist, people coming to see a normal therapist would not necessarily know as much about their background and life story. So how do you deal with all that, Lori? Well, it's funny because when I was writing the book, and I tell the story in the book of how maybe you should talk to someone came about because I wasn't supposed to be writing this book. I was supposed to be writing a book first about parenting and then about happiness, which I very much didn't want to write. I started calling it the miserable depression inducing happiness book because literally writing about happiness was making me depressed <laughs> because I felt like it could not capture the richness and flavor of the human condition in the way that I was seeing every day in the therapy room. And so ultimately I decided not to write that book and to just bring people into the therapy room. And so everybody said, oh, no one's going to read that book. No one's going to read that book about, you know, coming into the therapy room. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe three people will read it, but I, but for those three people, it could be very meaningful and, and life-changing for them. And so that I want to write something that feels meaningful to me. I'm not going to just write a commercial book and kind of cash out and, and that's that. Like I, I just... I couldn't, I couldn't live with that. And so I returned the money, I canceled the book, and I decided to write what was supposed to be this small little book. And of course, you know, it's spent over a year on the New York Times bestseller list, and it's being made into a television series. And so a lot of people, you know, for a lot of people, this book resonated. But in terms of my clients, because I thought no one would read it, I didn't really give a lot of thought to that because <laughs> I thought no one's going to read this book. My clients will never see it, right? So, you know, and then, and, and actually when the book came out, I, for the first time, took off, um, you know, quite a few weeks because I had to go on book tour. And I just said, you know, as usual, you know, so-and-so's on call and I'll be back on such and such date. And uh, that's that. I didn't say I'm going off on book tour that I wrote a book. And... At that point, you know, on book tour, you know, I, I had been on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. I had been, I had been on the New York Times. You know, a lot of things that the book sort of went everywhere immediately. And so when I came back a few weeks later, some people came in to therapy and they sat down on the couch and they said, so I read your book. <laughs> right. That was the first thing. Um, and it led to these really beautiful deep conversations, not so much about me, but about our relationship and all the things that they wish that they could have talked about. Even though I feel like I create that environment where we can talk about our relationship, it gave them a, like an extra layer of permission. You know, there's that scene in the book where I asked Wendell, my therapist, do you like me? You know, no one knows that. Like, can you ask your therapist that? So, you know, just it brought up all these things and people would talk about like how meaningful the relationship was and they felt like they could never say that to me because it would be creepy or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and just, you know, in this idea that they realize, oh, you think about your clients in between sessions and, and do you think about me? And, you know, what do you think about me? And all of these things. And it really deepened the work that we were doing together. And then there are other people who, to this day, have never said a word, uh, never acknowledged the book. And I, I think it would be hard. I, I, I really feel like they probably have, they probably know about it <laughs> um, on some level because I am their therapist. So the name, you know, if they see it somewhere, it rings a bell. Um, but they haven't said anything. And I have made the very intentional decision not to bring it up because I want to see if it comes up and, and, and that in, in and of itself, sort of how it comes up and when it comes up and if it comes up 
is something for us to talk about. So another thing that you have done as far as taking this experience of what it's like to be in therapy to the mainstream, the column at the Atlantic certainly is part of that, but more recently, the podcast, which is Dear Therapist, plural. Uh, the column for The Atlantic is Dear, Dear Therapist, and this is with Guy Winch. Until I listened to the podcast, which debuted in the summer of 220, I had never heard of Guy, but this is, I'll set the stage for our listeners if they haven't listened to it. It is, because our listeners are therapists. It is like you are sitting there with your co-therapist or maybe when you were in graduate school your supervision team and you're doing like a pre-session you you hear about this case and you are hypothesizing of what is going on either with the individual or couple and the relationship dynamics and then you actually talk to the person both you and guy so it's like you're having a session a brief consultation or opening interview if you will and then you take a break talk about what to do, much like we would in MFT supervision and deliver some advice or the intervention and then kind of do a post session and talk about what it's like. So if you've never, uh, if you're thinking about going to a family therapy or a systemic therapy training program, it's really what the, in a, in a little nutshell, in 50 minutes, it, it really replicates in some ways what it is like. And I'm sure that was the idea behind it, but I think it is brilliant in every episode I've uh listen to i have found kind of engaging with again much like the column problems uh, and issues that are universal to many people even when you're in the bubble of your little world and you think oh this only affects me you know you, you've found uh, dilemmas and relationship issues that appeal to a wide range so i am very curious of the origin of that and i think it is a wonderful contribution uh, as as the book and the column but uh really it's a really a joy to listen to. Tell me about how that got to be. Oh, well, thank you. It's so much fun to do for all the reasons that you said. Um, you know, I think as therapists, we work alone a lot. And of course, we have our consultation groups. You can read about my consultation group in Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. We have our colleagues. You can see that, you know, we'll run things by one another between sessions, um, confidentially, of course. But I think it's it's still something that you do alone in the room most of the time. And so on the podcast, it's fun to have a co-therapist. Guy and I met because we've both done TED Talks and we met through TED as we were working together on something. And we just had this great chemistry and similar way of seeing cases and, and people. And I was asked to do this podcast by um, Katie Couric, who's producing the podcast, and I, originally it was going to be me and I said, no, 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 I, I want to, I want to bring in somebody. And so I asked Guy if he would do it with me. And what I love is that you get the different perspectives that Guy and I don't always have exactly the same idea about something, which I think is great and, and even more beneficial for the person who comes on. We call them our fellow travelers based on Irv Yalom and how he had said, you know, we're all fellow travelers on this journey because I don't think that patient or client those terms just don't really capture what the relationship is between the therapist and this person who comes to them. I mean, so, you know, that goes back to the card carrying member of the human race that I talked about for the book. So we call them fellow travelers, but you know, it's kind of like a mock session and it's not actually therapy, you know, just legally, but it is, but it is basically, they write us a letter. Guy is the advice columnist for Ted and I'm the advice columnist for the Atlantic. And in our columns, we just deal with a letter. We never get to talk to the people and we don't get to find out what happens after we give the advice. And so here you hear two therapists discussing the case. Then you have the person come on, we do the session and the sessions are great because you have a co-therapist there. And so you, you hear the audio, but we all see what, so we're doing this on Zoom, right? So I, we see the, the person, we see the guest, we see each other. And so it really is like doing Zoom therapy. And then, um, and then we give them some suggestions. And what's nice is we give them really, you know, unlike maybe what we do in therapy, we give them actionable suggestions that they have to try within the week. And then you hear it all in one episode, but they leave, they come back and they tell us, what worked, what didn't. And I think we can learn so much from, you know, what actually happened, what did work, what didn't work and why. And so we do a little sort of debrief with that too, um, which you don't get, you know, in, you know, I think in any of the other um, media that we do, 
But in the therapy room, you do get that. As a therapist, every week you find out, well, what happened this week, right? How did that go when you had this conversation? <laughs> um, so we wanted to bring that to a much wider audience. And I think that people, whether you're a therapist or not a therapist, I think that people are learning a lot about themselves. And I think therapists are learning a lot. Um, just, you know, I always learn a lot when I listen to other therapists do their work. So I think it's always helpful to hear, you know, how does somebody else approach this? Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And again, that catchword I've been using feedback, you get the feedback from the traveler, and then you guys talk about how it went. It, it's excellent. You can find it wherever uh, you, you download your favorite podcast. So the other thing, because you have shared so much of your story, and you alluded to it, it's kind of the setup for the book. I'm not going to spoil any of the great things and revelations that come out of the book, but the crisis that, it, that was the catalyst for you meeting Wendell, you are you know, in a long-term relationship and you care about the person, but the person doesn't really want to be a stepdad to your young son. And it's this just kind of brutally kind of crushing thing that has you reevaluate everything because you shared so much of your story. I wonder, you know, the people close to you, I'm thinking, you know, what is your son who is now a teenager, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the reaction of your friends and family for you being uh, so confessional and sharing your own vulnerability in your writing. So I'm, I'm curious the reaction you've gotten from your own support network for how honest you are and how much you share about your life and your writing. Well, I would say two things about that. I, it, this reminds me actually of someone who just came on the podcast and, um, you know, they're sort of the truth teller in their family and their family is not happy about it. And that has something to do with uh, her relationship with her siblings. But it's interesting, one of the things we were talking about with her was about the role of the truth teller in a family. And when we say truth, again, everybody has their truths. So I don't mean that it's the only truth, but the person who says the things that aren't being said. And I think that when we talk about vulnerability, we're we're saying things that maybe other people don't necessarily want to look at. And maybe you know, I, I, I think what I'm doing in the book is I'm saying things that I didn't necessarily want to look at. And I realize that I have to be a truth teller for myself too. So I think that the people around me were very supportive because it wasn't, I'm going to tell the truth about other people. It was, I'm going to tell the truth about me and I'm going to tell the truth about my own denial about what was going on. And I'm going to tell the truth about my willful looking the other way when, you know, I come into Wendell with one story about what happened in this relationship and Wendell's not buying it. And of course, you know, <laughs> that wasn't what I expected. I think a lot of people think that when they go to a therapist, the therapist is going to validate their version of the story. And we all know that it's important to validate people's feelings, but you don't necessarily have to agree with what they're saying. You don't necessarily have to agree with their version of things. And yeah, fact, validating just means uh, it is not agreeing. I think that's one of the biggest things we do for clients, whether it be individuals or couples or families, they explain the difference between validating and agreeing. You can validate someone that they're not crazy for feeling that way, but you can, when you have a strong alliance, you can challenge them. And that is what Wendell did, but you weren't expecting that, but you needed that. Right, right. I mean, I thought I was coming in because of this breakup, but it turned out I was coming in for something completely different. And and that's not uncommon. And I talk about that in the book, how, you know, the presenting problem is often, um, you know, one aspect of uh, something broader and deeper that needs to be addressed. So that, it, you know, I think as therapists, what the great thing about outcome, when we talk about, you know, what is the outcome of our work is that the person leaves not because they solved that one problem, but because they saw that that one problem was related to lots of ways of navigating through the world that maybe, you know, weren't working. It was maybe a way of navigating through the world that wasn't working for them and it affected them in various areas of their lives. So it wasn't just this discrete problem. Sometimes it is a discrete problem, but sometimes there's so much more that they get out of the experience. Were you always the truth teller in your family of origin? I was, yeah. And, and again, how, not, how not they that, responded that, to your your success and your notoriety? Um, well, again, I just want to say again with truth that you know they have their own truths. Yeah. So I don't. So I'm. So I, what I mean is that my truth isn't more true than theirs. I, I. I. When I say truth, I just want to be clear that I was saying things that other people maybe felt uncomfortable hearing. 
And, and I think that often in families, there's that person, right? And usually they're the IP, the identified patient in a family system. So we see that all the time. And I see that play out. I see a lot of couples in my practice. In fact, my next book is going to be about how we love. And I, I see how the role that we played in our family of origin is so important and informs how we relate in those intimate relationships later in life. And so, you know, it's really interesting to see in a couple where there is that person who, you know, wants to say the things that are sort of under the surface and the other person who feels like, yeah, I don't really want to go there. That sometimes replicates something that each of them experienced growing up. And another thing that our listeners wanted me to ask you, so you've been, again, so open and, and telling your truth. I imagine it may be difficult, A, to balance all of this stuff that you're doing now because you still love doing the work, your writing, and the TV venture that you'll tell us about in a second, the podcast. So how you balance all that, number one, and then being in a relationship now. Is it difficult to be in a relationship uh, given that the person now knows you know how kind of honest and open you are and they may or may not be fodder for a, a future story or uh, a, a part of your your truth telling so to speak I think that with anybody in your life if you're a writer you have to be sensitive to other people but I also feel like there's a way to tell a story that's true and sensitive at the same time. I mean, if you look at maybe you should talk to someone, there are a couple chapters where that are about my son. And I feel like his life is his story, especially when you're a kid, right? And so I let him read the two chapters that that are, you know, very much focused on him. And and tell me, you know, if you want, I gave him carte blanche. I said, anything you want me to take out or change, I will do it. And so I think you have to make those choices as a writer. And and by the way, he was extremely generous and, and open. And I think that just the environment that he grew up in, because he has a mom who's a therapist and who, who really values, um, you know, that kind of openness. But I think that there's a line, right? It's like, you can't, you can't be in relationship with somebody and feel like anything you say is going to end up somewhere. I think then you would never be vulnerable. Yeah. And how you balance everything. And cause you're still seeing clients, you are doing the podcast, uh, you are writing the column, Tell us about the uh, ABC. Uh, Eva Longoria has the rights to your to adapt this, and, and the way I've heard you describe it is it's a it's not necessarily a, a show about therapists. It's a show about person and the relationships, and happens to be a therapist. So, how close is the the idea of the television series to the spirit of the book? Very close. Um, you know that that's really important to me because what I was trying to do, and maybe you should talk to someone, was to kind of turn those tropes of therapists in the media upside down. So I think that, you know, in, in popular culture, therapists are either the brick wall, the, you know, the person who doesn't say anything, that person who kind of, you know, like doesn't really feel human. And I don't think anybody really wants to go to a robot. And then the other kind of media trope, I think, with therapists is like the hot mess, the train wreck, the person who, you know, their life is like absolutely falling apart and, you know, they're all messed up, like in treatment, right? Um, you know, crossing boundaries, um, you know, being really inappropriate. Um, and that just doesn't reflect the therapists that, that I work with, the therapists that I know, um, the therapists that I've seen. It just, it doesn't. And so I really want to... I guess, illuminate the similarities between therapists and just, you know, people out in the world. What I've always said about the TV show is that I, exactly what you said, that I don't want it to be a show, quote unquote, about therapists, because then I think you get into all the cliches. I want it to be a show about people. And these people happen to be therapists. And I think just that orientation, even though it feels like splitting hairs. It's a very different orientation going in, especially as you're, you know, coming up with characters and story. It's this beautiful full circle part of your career too, going back to what you you fell in love with when you're talking about ER and the stories behind and, and, and coming back full circle to really do what you love, which is be a storyteller. And as I was saying earlier, from writing about people's stories to helping them change their stories to making 
these kind of universal things mainstream. What an amazing career you, you've had thus far and so much left to do. I, I can't thank you enough. I want to let you plug anything you want or any last words because I think um, when we look at your career down the line, we're going to look at somebody who really ushered in not only normalizing psychotherapy, couple individual therapy from a systemic lens, but someone who also gave people a lot of courage to leave something maybe that they weren't fully passionate about to strike out and do something meaningful and have that pay off. So I think, like I said, there's going to be a lot of people that enter therapy, uh, enter psychotherapy as a second or third profession because they have uh, heard you or read your books. So I I can't thank you enough. What final words you want to leave our our listeners with? Well, I guess I just want to say that for the people who are listening to not forget what an honor it is to do what we do, for people to come in and to trust us and to open up to us, to be vulnerable with us, and and to remember just how human this profession is. And I think also to remember that people have the answers to their own lives. They really do. And our job isn't to give them the answers. Our job is to help them to access the answers that they already have somewhere. And that's been, I think, the most rewarding part of the work. And I think that, you know, I hope that people will will read the column called Dear Therapist in the Atlantic. I hope that it comes out every Monday. I hope that people will listen to the podcast called Dear Therapist, plural, which comes out every Thursday, wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope they'll read Maybe You Should Talk to Someone and see themselves in it. I hope they'll listen to the TED Talk and maybe use it. Um, a lot of people are using it with their clients who find it very helpful. So, And I hope that they'll put their work out there too, because I want to learn from them as well. I feel like we can all learn a lot from one another. Beautifully said. Thank you so much, Lori Gottlieb. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another installment of the AAMFT podcast. Probably our most high-profile guest as far as MFT heading into the mainstream. Lori has quite a story, and I really enjoyed that. And I got to thank former guest of this show and friend, Alexandra Solomon, a great female voice in MFT in her own right, as far as couples and relationships, for hooking that up. Lori is very busy, one of the hardest working people in psychotherapy. So usually I can reach out to a guest with the uh, good reputation of the show, get somebody as long as you can work around their schedule. Lori really did us a favor there and I appreciate that. And please check out her column in the Atlantic, Dear Therapists, wherever you find your favorite podcast. And maybe you should talk to someone, which as I said during the interview, I think should be standard. Anybody getting into the field uh, as far as the power of doing your own work while becoming a therapist or being a therapist, no matter what your theoretical orientation is. So just like you can listen to Dear Therapist wherever you find your favorite podcast, you can also listen to the AMFT podcast. Now in our third season, please correspond with us. That's how we got a lot of requests for Lori starting last year and I worked really hard to land that interview so the content is driven by you the listener get a hold of us on twitter at the amft i'm at dr eli live you can visit me at elicarum.com or drop me an email at eli at northstarcounselingcenter.com help us rise through the ranks of major mental health podcast please it's always nice to give a star rating and a review it really helps thank you so much to our loyal listeners Until next time, my friends, stay systemic.